like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years. Flex 7 outer shell fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of Enforced technology, Flex 7 outer shell fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit tenkatafabrics.com slash flex7. Flex 7, powered by Enforced technology. Only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Seconds count when responding to an emergency. Minutes save count when documenting your day. Emergency networking makes records management easier and faster with its Fire and EMS solution. User-friendly, complete online and offline functionality, highly customizable, all at an affordable price. For more information, please visit emergencynetworking.com. Well, welcome everybody. This is Eric Dryman from host of the Hooks and Hoses podcast on the Fire Engineering Network. Thanks again for tuning in to our episode this evening. Um, before I get going with my guest, I want to cover a couple of things real quick. For those of you that are watching us on YouTube, I would I would ask that you go down and click the uh, the thumbs up for me if you would, just uh, to say that you like the the podcast and the format on the on Facebook. And then if you're listening to this on any of the audio platforms, I would ask you also to, you know, give it a five stars or give it a thumbs up or whatever, whatever scoring system that your platform uh, has for rating podcasts. It helps us uh, drive content. It helps us to show up uh, when people do searches for um, firefighting related podcasts. So that would mean a whole lot to me. It would mean a whole lot to uh, the fire engineer, fire engineering network. Um, as well. So I, I appreciate you doing that. Um, just a couple of quick announcements before I introduce my guest here. I've got uh, got good news for the 15th year in a row. Uh, we'll be hosting the uh, Vent Inner Search class at FDIC uh, 2024. Really looking forward to that. We're retooling the program. Um, this year in 2023 was our first year to have uh, a fixed facility where we, we were really able to have really good live fire scenarios uh, for the vent inner search and that's going to continue for next year. Um, we're changing up some of the stations. We're getting rid of some of the stations that didn't have live fire involved with them. We're adding some additional stations or new stations that will take those um, older stations place. So um, there's, there's going to be more opportunities going into 2024 for you to experience live fire conditions, doing vent inner search um, under a variety of different scenarios. We're going to be adding a, a pediatric and child um, stations to the to the class this year. So we're going to have bunk beds and baby cribs and things like that that we haven't had in the past. So I'm really looking forward to that. And then one more thing, um, be on the lookout training minutes uh, this month. We did uh, that myself, along with the instructors for the Vent Inner Search class, we recorded six videos back in April for uh, the Fire Engineering Training Minutes, and those will be coming out here um, very soon on the Fire Engineering uh, website. So really, really happy to be able to be involved with that. Really appreciative of, uh, you know, Chief Rhodes, um, Diane Rothschild, and all the other folks at Fire Engineering that made this happen. 
Um, couldn't have done it without you. So we really appreciate that. Uh, so got all that formality out of the way. <clears throat> I want to introduce my guest who probably really doesn't need any introduction for most people who are, if they consider themselves involved in the fire service. But my guest tonight is Sean Duffy. Uh, he's an 18 year member of the fire service. Um, Sean holds a lot, a whole lot of, uh, uh, professional and technical certifications from from both the states he's worked in as well as across the country. He's a contributor to Fire Engineering Magazine. He's a presenter at uh, FDIC himself. Um, he's probably best known for Searchable versus Survivable, his uh, class that he teaches. But he's got a lot. He's a lot deeper than just uh, Searchable versus Survivable, and we're going to get into that, um, you know, as the podcast goes along. Sean currently is with the Ann Arbor, Michigan Fire Department. Uh, prior to moving to Michigan, he was with the Venice, Florida Fire Department. Uh, so he has quite a bit of experience both in the warm weather and in the cold weather. Um, and uh, I've been fortunate enough, I haven't spent a whole lot of time with Sean, um, but Sean's a, a great guy. I've uh, had the opportunity to spend, uh, I think, three days with you in Pennsylvania about a year and a half, two years ago. Um, really got along with him well, learned a lot. Uh, enjoyed his company. And uh, so, Sean, welcome. Welcome to the uh, Hooks and Hoses podcast. Oh, man. Thank you for uh, the invite. It's it's uh, it's glad I'm glad to be here. And uh, it's nice to be able to catch up with you for a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we don't we don't get to see each other as each other as much in person as we would like. But, uh, um, you know, we, we try and stay in contact, obviously. Um, so, Sean, was there anything you wanted to add to your bio? Uh, you know, I know you've got a family. You've certainly got you're way more involved in the fire service than just what i mentioned so anything you want to add feel, feel free yeah i just uh you know the the 18 years of, of fire service experience that i have um i started as a volunteer much like anybody else um in hillsborough county florida and uh you know i eventually just moved on and did a a large majority of my career there afterwards in a county called sumter county which is where i really gained a lot of experience and, you know, that system was set up there to, to really mold me into uh, the firefighter I am today. So uh, when I talk about the things that I talk about in the fire service, uh, it generally comes from a well-rounded perspective. Uh, I've had the, the opportunity to be in several other departments, um, which I don't regret. One of those, uh, Pasco County, Florida, I did about two years there. And, uh, you know, I, I learned how to be a paramedic and, and search off uh, an ambulance and do all those other things. So um, I just, I, I feel it's important to let people know because mm -hmm. uh, generally when you see a bio, people see where you just that one part where you currently work and everything else like that. And mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot more to me than, than just, uh, you know, Michigan or, or Florida. So uh, uh, good. No, I, I was just going to say, I, I think that's very important. So, you know, elaborate on that as much as you want. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, uh, you know, the the, the reasons I, I've moved around, you mentioned I had a family and, and they're my number one priority always. Um, they're, they're always going to be. Uh, I will put them first before anything else, um, including my my own, uh, you know, goals that I have set. So, you know, that that brought, is what brought me to Michigan is, uh, you know, my my wife, her mom was real sick and. Uh, you know, we just couldn't see putting her in a nursing home or anything like that. So we decided to make the move and, you know, hit that reset button on my career. And, you know, it's, it's been awesome. I love the city I work in now, still learning a lot. 
uh, especially about building construction and things like that, that I never experienced when I was working down South. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this job will give you a lot if you let it. Yeah. And, um, you know, so that's, that's really about it. You know, just an average firefighter. Yeah. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I'd say, you know, I've always said, um, firefighters are the, are the backbone of the fire service. You know, people say, Oh, well, you're, you know, the chiefs run things or the company officers run the house or whatever, but, and, and those, that's true. But, and, you know, when you get down to brass tacks, it's, it's the firefighters that make or break because there's, there's a whole lot more of them than there is any of the other ranks within the fire department. So, you know, I, I, sure. I, I do appreciate that. And I think that's important to understand. And, and also just understanding that, you know, certainly, you know, as you said, working in Florida, the, you know, you mentioned building construction specifically. Um, I'm sure there's some, there were probably some demographic differences being in Florida versus being in Michigan, but, you know, going from probably what was a lot of lightweight construction, certainly I'm, I'm sure you encountered your fair share of, you know, hurricane rated buildings and things like that up to, you know, central Michigan, where there's probably a lot more ordinary construction, um, legacy construction, things like that. Um, you know, it definitely lends itself to a huge learning opportunity, as you already kind of mentioned. So that's, uh, you know, it makes you a, a more well-rounded firefighter um, just from the outside looking in, just based upon what you've said so far tonight. So, um, you know, I applaud you for that. I certainly applaud you for your dedication to your family. That's I know that's a big deal with you because I kind of already knew your backstory about how you went from, you know, people want to ask, well, how does a guy go from Florida to Michigan? You know, you know, you know, that's that's not the typical. It's, it's usually if anything, it's the opposite. Right. You start out in Michigan right, and right. you're like, man, it snows up here a lot. I'm going to Florida. But you kind of flip the, the script on everybody. So it's you know, I appreciate you explaining that. And, and it just shows the kind of guy you are, not only a firefighter, but a husband and a father. And, um, you know, to to make to to give up a career that you'd certainly had established in Florida because it was in the best interest of your your family and and your wife's family that says a lot about you so you know i appreciate you going into all that so um you know i know sean and i talked a little bit on the phone leading up to this podcast recording to kind of get our ducks in a row and talk about what we were going to um discuss and those sorts of things and as i mentioned in his intro sean is is probably best known for searchable versus survivable right i i think you would probably agree with that uh, assessment wouldn't you sean yeah, but oh, yeah. you know, yeah, that's yeah. Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh probably kind of what got your name out there and kind of you know one of the things that um, I would assume that you're pretty proud of um, given the amount of success that and and rightly so success that you've had with that. So, um, you know, I I know about searchable versus survivable. You know, it, it seems pretty straightforward when you say, oh well, if it's uh, if it's searchable, then it should be survivable, right? But it's not that simple. So um, just kind of go in for the audience, just kind of go into, you know, why why saying searchable, if, you know, if it's searchable, then it's survivable. You know, if you just take those two words and you put them in firefighter terms, you would say, well, that makes that sense. That makes sense. And that's no, that's a no brainer. But um, what I want you to talk about is, you know, the, the UL studies that, that you've cited in, in your classes and in your articles and, and uh, the firefighter rescue survey and a lot of the other things that go into um, how we as firefighters should be making our decisions about um, sizing up a structure, 
deciding where we're going to make entry, how we're going to do a search, how we're going to remove our victims and those sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. So there, there's a lot um, yeah. <laughs> to unpack with with this this title, really. And and the reason I made it the way it was, was I wanted people to think, right? I wanted them to be like, well, what does that mean? Because at least in my experiences uh, early in my career and, you know, moving forward, I was going to fires and I was asking my question of like, why aren't we prioritizing search? Why is this so far down the list? And, you know, when we were pulling people out and, and the, the mindset was, oh, you know, there's there's nothing we could have done. You know, they were already dead before we got there. I just, I didn't believe that to be true. And I'm not saying that any department I worked for was terrible at, at what they were doing. I just think like, we know what we know. And then as time goes on, we know what we know now. And I just found myself sitting there being like, there's gotta be more to this, you know, like surely as imperfect human beings, we cannot make a decision from outside of the structure on whether someone can survive or not. That's not what we're here to do. Right. And I was very passionate about that. I show up to a fire and my number one objective is life. You know, if I got to put a line in place to make that happen, so be it. If I got to search right now because time is is precious and we just don't have much before we lose a space, then I'm going to do that too. And it just amazed me the the amount of people that were playing God, so to speak. They were taking that into their hands and saying, "Hey," and you know, it's like, no, we're there to give them the best chance of survival. That means we're going to search for them, we're going to remove them, hand them off to EMS care, and then whatever happens after that, you know, is up to the man upstairs or whatever you believe in. And that was, that's been a hard battle to fight, but, you know, being able to prove things both through experience and data and and now with the UL showing things has been instrumental in this program success because it's not just Sean up there saying, well, I went to a fire and this happened. It's, Hey, I went to a fire. This is what I experienced. I didn't know this. Then this is what the UL has said. This is what would have probably made a difference. And here's the data from Firefighter Rescue Survey to back it up from actual fire ground rescues. Um, so putting that in a full package for people to kind of dissect, it's been amazing. And I've learned a lot along the way too, just from the students taking that class, because we share we share stories, you know, and one of the things I always ask is, hey, first, who in this room has had a rescue? And people raise their hands and, hey, was it easy? No. Did it take a while? Yes. Okay. Were you gassed afterwards? Yeah. We're going to talk about all that today. And hopefully you can take something else away from it that that light bulb will click and be like, man, if I would have just known that, maybe the outcome would have been different. So, um, yeah, that that was really the intention of that was I'm not God's gift of firefighting. I was just a very frustrated firefighter with how easy it was for us to sweep things under the rug. And it didn't really seem like it bothered many people. And it really bothered me. And I'm like, man we, we got to do better. And the only way to do that is to truly expose ourselves and see where we're winning and where we're losing. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, uh, you know, looking at, uh, you know, the articles you've written, watching you on YouTube, speaking to you in person. Um, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for what you initially learn in the fire Academy where we we teach recruits or, or new firefighters, how to do a left or a right hand search and, you know, and, and a lot of the things that we teach them, uh, although it's all valuable and I'm not I'm not trying to discount the way we teach our recruits, because I think, you know, as new firefighters, we have us we have to teach them how to do it by the textbook before we can expect them to 
start making their own decisions and and adapting to because not every no fire is going to be like it was, you know, in in the academy, right? But um, right, just just helping people to understand that there's a whole lot more that goes into it than just crossing that threshold, going in the front door and, Hey, I'm going to go left or I'm going to go right. Um, you know, and, and, and you get into that, um, with some of your discussions as far as, um, you know, and I know, you know, the, the class we taught together in Pennsylvania, we were talking, we were doing vendor search and we were doing conventional search and, and different things like that. And just the different ways that, that, that a firefighter can accomplish those things, right? We teach going in the front door, you search, you return to the front door. But in reality, that may not be practical, right? You, you may find somebody and it may be, you know, you may be 15 or 20 feet past the front door, but just because you came in the front door doesn't mean you have to go back out the front door, you know, and, and, and the same with vent or search, you know, just because you go in a window doesn't mean that you have to come back out that window, although that's kind of what the vast majority of the fire service preaches that there's certainly room for, you know, discussion there and subjectivity. So, um, based on your experience, both personally and, you know, on the fire ground and traveling around and teaching, what are some of the, um, misgivings or misnomers that you've encountered that you've had to either correct people on, or you've had, you know, you've battled over your career, to try and change people's perceptions or change people's ideas of how we're going to accomplish uh, this, you know, what should be everybody's first priority, which is life. You know, we didn't raise our right hand and promise to, um, you know, not worry about life, but save buildings. Right. It was kind of the other way around. <laughs> so, um, you know, you know, kind of elaborate on that or, you know, talk to the audience a little bit about your thought process there. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a great question because I still see it all the time. And, and, you know, anybody who's on social media can, can see it anytime you post a picture or, or anything like that is the, the big old, well, that's not what IFSTA teaches or right. insert whatever textbook here. Right. Absolutely. And trying to get people to understand is like, Hey, listen, that book is not teaching by experience, right? Like that book is taking somebody or whatever book you're using is taking somebody and saying, I'm going to give you a very, basic overview of how this should look or, or what I want you to do, but it doesn't really go into depth on anything really, you know? And, and that's the hard part is it's like, okay, so you go to do a search class and they're still holding each other's feet or they're like tool on the wall and they're stretched out here and they're only searching with one hand. And, and you ask them, you're like, Hey, why are you doing that? And well, that's, that's the way I was taught. Okay, so nobody up to this point had had any other experience to say that doesn't work. And they're the look on their face is just confusion. Like, what do you mean? And you can't judge them for it. You know, as frustrating as it is, like you're like, oh my God, I can't believe that that nobody has stepped in. But that's the by- byproduct of people in the fire service not really taking deep dives into the subjects and just staying like at that base level, hoping that every time they go to a fire is gonna teach them how to do this thing. And, and it may, you know, and there, don't get me wrong. There is definitely something to be said about fire ground experience, but just because you went to a fire and you, you stumbled upon a victim because you searched poorly, doesn't mean that's the right way to do it. You just got lucky. Right. So we got to break those training scars and often bring them down and say, Hey, like you should be comfortable doing this. 
right? This is not, this is not a scary thing. Like the minute that like you're scared and you're freaking out and, and you let that overwhelm you, like you have done nothing for the victims that are inside this building. You're taking too long. Like this is, this is bad for you and victims, right? Because I have to tell them, like, I don't know about you guys. I don't want to be in a burning building longer than I have to be. So let's just get there. Let's be efficient. Let's be effective. Get the job done and go. And this is how you're going to do it. And you show them just like those little techniques. And man, they just, it's awesome when like even somebody who has been on the job for a while realizes like, man, just by tweaking my body position a little bit or like keeping my head up instead of down or whatever it is, like I covered more space. I was faster. And they just have this sense of like accomplishment about them. And now, you know, they have that confidence. They'll get out of there. And then they'll start doing that, you know? So that number one is the biggest thing is getting past like fire Academy says and, and trying to prove to them like this works, like, don't just take it from me. Like, you know, try and prove me wrong, please do. But ask other people in the industry who have experience with search and who have had rescues and things like that. What are they teaching, you know, or what have they been taught? And, um, the second one that we honestly, I, I honestly come across a lot is policies. Well, we can't do that because my department won't let me. I say, okay, well, why not? Well, I don't know. Well, does your chief, has your chief read this study or has your training officer read this study or your captain or whoever? Uh, no. Does anybody in your department know about this? Not to the best of my knowledge. Okay, so we have some work to do. Step one, I'm going to give you all of the information you need to take back. And you don't have to be disrespectful or anything, but just put it in their hands and say, hey, you know, I came across this, I like to read it because we can only make decisions based off of what we know. And if people aren't aware that things are out there or that a uh, recent tactic has changed and, and this is now best practice, they're just going to continue to instill those bad practices. So it's a combination of getting people to step outside their comfort zone and realize that things are uh, able to happen and they are relatively safe and breaking that misnomer that all these firemen are dying on the hand line or performing search and ventilation and like all these things and, and just really bring it to them with things that you can prove. So when they are questioned, they have a leg to stand on because there's a big difference between facts and opinions, right? And we don't offer operate on opinion. We, we want to operate on facts, like what we can prove. So having, having that, to be able to give to the students, I think is, is a way to break that is saying like, look, this has been proven. Here we go. And, uh, what I like to do is I'll put baby powder on the floor mm -hmm. and I'll let them search their way. And then I'll say, okay, this is everything you missed so they can see it. And yeah. then we'll redo it. We'll train them the, the way that we want them to do things. And then we'll, we'll baby powder the floor again and they can see the improvement. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I went on a little bit of a rant there, but <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. No, those that's... are the things that, that drive me crazy when I go out and then I hear those things. So I'm just like, Oh man, like question, question things. It's okay to question things, you mm -hmm. know, like ask, ask why, why do we do it this way? Like don't just take things at face value, right? Like, the citizens you swore to protect deserve better than that. And you mm -hmm. need to be able to provide that to them. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, and right or wrong, you know, I've 
certainly experienced my fair share of this, but, and, and I was, I was guilty of it initially when I first entered the fire service and that, you know, I went through the firefighter one and two training and I started out as a volunteer similar to you before I transitioned to the career side. But, you know, I thought I knew everything there was to know about firefighting. And the problem with that is I didn't know what I didn't know. Right. And I only knew as much as the instructors who taught my class knew. And for, for the longest period of time, I took for granted that the people that taught me knew everything there was to know about firefighting. Um, you know, whether, you know, we're talking about certs tonight, but it could have been any, any topic, but, um, and, and, you know, the, the people that I had that taught my classes were great people and they, they had the best of intentions. Um, but I think, and, and I, I experienced this too, as I travel around the country, it's, you know, we don't have, um, you can say IFTA, you can say NFPA, you know, there's, there's plenty of alphabet soup agencies that are, you know, holistic across the country that everybody kind of recognizes, or if you mention them, they know who they are in the fire service. Right. Um, but at the same time, we don't have a standard or we don't have an agency that we, we, uh, rely upon like the, uh, and I know you're a paramedic, I'm a paramedic, but I'll, I'll just use ACLS as an example. The American Heart Association, you know, every year or every other year comes out with a new standard about how we deal with um, cardiac arrests and strokes, right? We don't have, really have that in the fire service formally. Certainly groups like UL and FSRI and, you know, the Firefighter Rescue Survey and, and fire engineering and, and all the other um, people around the, you know, the big names in the industry are doing the best they can, but we don't have a collective like clearinghouse that discusses all these things. So when, when UL comes out with a new study, you know, like they did, you know, back in the mid two thousands or FSRI comes out with a new study on a topic, you know, in the last few years, um, <clears throat> there's, there's other than it being published in a magazine or you see it in, a, in an ad that scrolls by on your, on your home screen, um, there, there's not really any way to get that information out to the entire fire service. So people, you know, default to what they've always done, default to what has always been successful for them, even if it's only been successful because they got lucky or, you know, as you, as you mentioned earlier, you know, they, they happened to stumble across somebody. So um, to me, that's one of the biggest challenges I think for the fire service today is we need to collectively come up with some sort of way to, have a central clearinghouse, um, you know, a, a database, you know, Hey, this is best practices across the nation. Um, a common terminology, you know, it's, I took, uh, um, Aaron Fields class nozzle forward a few years ago. Um, and he, he brought that up, you know, he talked about, you know, most, most trades in the United States, electricians, plumbers, you know, steam fitters, boilermakers, whatever they have, they have the same terminology. You can build a, you know, you can plumb a house in California and you can plumb a house in New York. Terminology is the same. The fire service doesn't have that, right? So I think that moving forward, one of the big things that, that we can do and hopefully platforms like this can help to do that is to help educate people and to, to where to find these studies and get this information so that they, you know, collectively as a, as an industry across the country, we start to learn what, these studies are showing us and what these surveys are finding, uh, because I, I really think that's the only way that we're really going to turn 
turn things around for us. Uh, certainly folks like you or me or, you know, any of the other um, people in the industry that are traveling around and teaching or have podcasts can, can preach uh, the message. But at the end of the day, it's, it's going to take something bigger than, than a bunch of podcasts and a bunch of magazine articles to really uh, impact um, things moving forward. Although I do think we're kind of trending in the right direction at the same time. I don't think we're moving fast enough because the, the, as, as much as you and I trying to keep up and everybody else that, that is committed to the job tries to keep up, we're trying to keep up with information that came out last month or last year. And there's already been one or two more, you know, research studies published or somebody's found out some new data that they've passed along. So it always seems like we're behind the curve. Um, you got any thoughts about that or ideas about that? Yeah. Yeah, I'm listening to you talking. So many things are going in my mind. Right? Yeah, I kind of got um, on a tangent too myself. So no, I, I love it because you're you're right on on target with what drove me to start digging deeper and what I urge other people to think. And just going back a little bit to what you said about you know ACLS, I'll, I'll just break it down to simple terms for for people who who just know basic medical stuff. CPR, all right. Right. American Heart has proved that like every minute in cardiac arrest, your survivability rate decreases by 7 to 10%. And we mm-hmm. know this. So mm-hmm. because we know this, what has happened? We all get trained on how to do it and what's the most effective way. And we get recertified. And, you know, if we run a call, uh, there's documentation, right? And in that documentation, what are they doing? They're, they're QA in that. They're making sure that we did all of the things that we were supposed to do when we were supposed to do them. And if you didn't, you, you have some questions to answer, right? Um, up to and including being proven negligent. So if we can do that on EMS, I think we need to be able to do that on the fire side too, right? And, you know, I, I look at it, like I tell everybody, like what happens when we try and get another ISO rating? Uh, we do the NFPA 1410 drills. We try and get our times down. Like, so when we're tested, we could show like, yes, we can do this. Why is that not happening more? Why do we only do it at certain times, right? So like, for example, the the new uh, UL study that came out about single family um, residential homes, right? Um, they were able to, to, to prove some things to us that time does matter, right? And that we have to be able to, to do certain things in these benchmarks. And when we look at that, there's... There's check sheets that they have. They have forms now that you can get straight from from their fire academy site, right? Um, to print out to help you train that way to meet those benchmarks. Like, hey, how fast is it till we get to the victim? Okay, cool. How fast uh, is it till we remove them? And what techniques are you using? And and what have you found works best for you? And like that stuff is all there. We're just not putting it out there to the masses, and we're not holding people accountable and saying this is the new standard. And the thing that drives me crazy about that, you mentioned other um, professions, other blue collar professions. I'll go one step back. How about the fact that you could go take a job at McDonald's tomorrow, right? And move clear across the country and work at another McDonald's and things are done exactly the same. You know, when someone orders a number two, you know exactly what it is. You know how to make it, right? Because their training is set up that way no matter where you're at the fire service has gotten really good at confusing people with terminology or tactics or anything else. And we haven't really done a a good job around standardizing as a whole, what we're supposed to do. And, and a good example of that is any firefighter could be nationally accredited. That's fine. 
you do that. You go to move to another state. What's that state tell you? I don't care. You're going to retake our academy or you're going to prove to us that you can do things our way. That piece of paper means nothing. So it, we're fooling ourselves into thinking like that we're, we're all the same and, and, and we're not right. And until we can get on a page where uh, we talk about search or fire attack or whatever and say, here's all the information it's been vetted. This is what we can prove. This is what is going to be taught in our academies from, you know, East coast to West coast, North to South, wherever you're at, this is the curriculum. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I guarantee you like Aaron Fields nozzle forward, amazing program. Guarantee you that stuff's not being taught in fire academies. Neither is what we can now prove from these UL studies or anything like that. And that stuff is what's going to make a difference and save firefighters lives and civilians lives. And, you know, we just, we just leave it too much up to the whole, Hey, when you get out of here, wherever you land up is going to teach you how to do this. And then we fail people and we don't. And then we just leave it up to that individual to hopefully have enough like ambition to search that stuff out and find it. And then what happens? They go to the firehouse and they're excited. They found it and they want to do better and they get bashed on. They get made fun of. Right. And, and we have all these things that are working so much against us. But on the flip side, we have a lot of people that are fighting to bring that back, you know, fighting against that. And we have a lot of young firefighters that are hungry for this knowledge. So I think we're in a pivotal time right now. And as long as we stay at it and we keep throwing those things out there um, and we're not afraid to share information, uh, hopefully, you know, we, we can start turning the ship, so to speak, and, and getting more to a standardized fire service. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think, um, I know for, it, it seemed like for, I don't know, the last 10 years or so, and, I, and I'm, I'm not saying that it's gone away and I'm not saying that it's a bad thing, but there was a lot of push for higher education. And I think that that is important. Um, I know you, you've got a degree, you know, in fire, fire science and, uh, I do as well. And, and I think there's there's a lot to be gained by that. But simply graduating from a fire academy and then saying, OK, well, the next step in my, um, you know, career journey is to get my degree. I would just, you know, I disagree with getting a degree. I don't, <laughs> that sounds kind of weird, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, because I think that a lot of people, they graduate the academy and they're like, okay, I know all that firefighting stuff, right? So now what's next? Well, I'm going to work on my degree. I'm going to work on, I'm, you know, I'm going to get uh, my rope tech. I'm going to go to uh, paramedic school. I'm going to go to dive school, you know, and certainly all those things have value. I'm not, I'm not trying to discount those, but I think people, in my experience, um, myself included, um, you know, I've lived, I've learned a lot from my mistakes over the years. Um, you know, we, we think just because we got a certificate that says, Hey, you're a firefighter one and two. Um, oh, well, I know everything there is to know about that. So what's the next thing, you know, in my career that I want to accomplish. And I think, you know, as I started out this, this, this monologue, you know, there used to be this for, for several years, there was a huge push towards higher education. And, and it seems like in the last two, three, four years, that's kind of flipped and people are starting to say, Hey man, you know, yeah, all that, all that education is still important. When you get to be, you know, a captain, a battalion chief, you want to be a member of an administration of an organization. But when you get down to brass tacks, this is a blue collar job, right? So that journeyman 
you know, that journeyman mindset going from an apprentice when you graduate from the academy to becoming a journeyman, you know, to use a, a plumbing or electrical, um, you know, descriptor. Um, there's a lot to be said for that, right? Because you don't get to be the guy in charge, the owner of the electrical company, if you don't know how to wire a house. But in, in my experience, there's a lot of people that, um, that want to jump from being the apprentice to being the owner of the electrical company without having marched through all those other steps and, you know, put their time in, in the firehouse and learn what it means to, to do all the different aspects of the job. So I, I think that's important to, and, and to the credit of the fire service, as you said, you know, it's seems to be making a resurgence. You start to see a lot more people who are more focused on those, those day to day, um, black hat kind of skills that we need to be better at. Right. Um, so I, I think that's very important. And, and I think, and I don't know, I haven't, I didn't ask you about this. I don't know exactly your opinion. I think I have an idea, but I always say, I always say, you know, we, we do, we, we train people in the fire Academy or in their firefighter one and two class or, or whatever, you know, format their initial training occurred in. I, I equate it to um, building a house and all we're doing when you're in the fire Academy is we're laying that cinder block for the foundation, right? Cause you can't have a decent sized house um, if you don't have a good foundation, but a foundation is not a house just because you graduate, you basically got cinder block laid out in the perimeter around the footprint of what will ultimately be the house, your career. Right. So um, I've also used the, the comparison, we teach you the black and white in the fire academy. You don't really, you have to learn the gray when you graduate. And, and that's kind of what you alluded to is, you know, you might get taught the basics in the fire academy, but if you graduate and you don't get the opportunity to make a lot of fire runs or you don't get an opportunity to work with somebody who's motivated, it makes it that much harder for a new firefighter to build that house or learn how to operate in that gray, you know? Um, so I, I think you agree. I think you <laughs> have similar <laughs> thought processes to that, you know, based upon our time we have spent together. But, um, you know, if you've got any thoughts about that or, um, no, ideas. I, I, I think you're spot on there because like I, I fail a lot, you know, like I mess up things all the time. And, and that's part of why I, I keep, doing research and I keep working on myself because, you know, like you can't sit here and preach things and, and expect that like, you're going to have all the answers and do it perfect all the time. And it's just not going to, it's just not going to work out that way. So, um, really when I left the Academy, I thought I was good. I was like, sweet, you know, I'm going to be able to, uh, do all of these things. And, you know, I was talking about this on another podcast, not that long ago that I'd been to fires, you know, and, and I thought I was like, a pretty decent firefighter. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> I was so wrong. I just, I just got lucky. You know, I just never found myself in a jam or, you know, and the, the searches we were doing were just, you know, like, you know, nobody really was in there. There was never any reports and for whatever that means. Um, until one day where the first arriving engine had a pump failure and we were pulling up next. And as I'm walking up, the neighbor's like, Hey, this, person's in here. She had knee surgery or something like that. And all I remember is being like, so amped up, like, this is it. I'm going to go make a rescue. 
but I had no idea what I, I had no plan. I didn't, I didn't size up that building or that, that it was a double wide mobile home. I didn't size that up. I didn't look at, you know, where am I going to exit? If I find somebody in here, I had no plan on how I was going to even drag them. Like nobody, we, we weren't really taught any victim removal techniques. So what good was I really going to do at this moment? If I was to find somebody, wasn't it, <laughs> you know, I might as well just leave them in there. Because I, I, could, I could be the best searcher in the world, but if I don't have the basic principles to build off of, of how to remove them and, and do all these, it means nothing. And I think that's where we fall short is we, we feel like I've given you everything. Here's your foundation. Tomorrow you can go to a fire and you should be able to do these things. And that's just not true, right? Doing things in a very controlled environment where your life isn't on the line or somebody else's life isn't on the line, your heart rate's not elevated, um, is very, very different. Doing searches in a burn building like we do at the academy is very different than doing them in a furnished house or a hoarding style house or, or any of those things. Um, it, it just is. Dragging a dummy that already has webbing on it isn't doing anybody any good, right? So there's all these these false beliefs that we instill into people. And then they get out there and they're like, oh crap, that's not going to happen. Or, or this isn't going to work. And the one thing that I don't think we, we think about enough is what position is that person going to be found in? Right? Because going back to my situation, um, my partner left, right? So now I'm looking for a victim bus. I'm looking for my partner I didn't have a radio. So like all these things are starting to stack up. We didn't spend a whole lot of time on many procedures in the Academy, except for the whole like lunar thing, which at that point I didn't even know any, like, even if I had a radio, I probably wouldn't have the thought process to key it up and say like all of that, you know? So we, I think the realistic training, we have to train how we want people to perform is what I'm getting at. And um, to think that, Hey, you have a foundation. We've built this foundation for you. Here you go. You're good to go. Man, we are just failing so many people because, you know, let's face it, not everybody's fortunate enough to get out on a go-getter crew, you know, and be taught, you know, and if that's allowed to happen, uh, you know, say two, three, four years, whatever the case is, eventually that person with that same base foundation of knowledge is going to be teaching all they know to somebody coming right behind them. And there's no advancement, Right. Until it's time to promote, maybe then they'll start reading, <laughs> doing whatever. But tangent about that is just like, hey, can we train realistic? Can we can we do that straight from the get go, and give people a, a better foundation? Like that's where I want to go in the fire service. Is I, I get we can't cover everything, but man, can we can we just forget about the the BS foundation that we've been laying? And, and lay an even better one because that's the, what they're going to operate to. So um, if we can get them squared away from, from day one on that better foundation and everything that we, we have to our knowledge now, I, I think we're going to make more effective, critical thinking firemen. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. I, I want you to, uh, there was a whole lot there, but, um, I want you to, you, you brought up a couple of things. You know, you talked about sprinkling powder and, 
and having them search their way and then you show them a new way to search and look at the difference. But I'll tell the audience one thing that that you told me when we were in Pennsylvania was you talked about that you would strip down and cover yourself. in I think it was Vaseline or Dawn. So I don't remember what you were covered in, but I just remember it was flickering, you know, pig snot. But I'm like, this guy (laughs) is really into this training stuff. Here he is. He's one of the, you know, the instructors, if not the lead instructor, and he's stripping down to his skivvies and he's lathering himself up with God knows what just to make, make himself more realistic for for a victim uh, drag. So talk about some of the things that you've done to you know bring that more realistic um, training, those more realistic training scenarios um, to fruition. And, uh, you know, so that the students get a little bit more out of it than just what they typically would get at a routine search class. Oh yeah. So that's, that's true. <laughs> uh, we did, uh, did, did strip down our underwear. We'd had lavender soap. That's the only thing we had around. So, uh, covered up and we were doing an engine company, uh, drill, like searching off yeah. the hand line, right? Like mm-hmm. push to the fire and then you have a, a victim and you got to get them. So I was laying in a puddle of water already. So when they were getting me, they're just slipping and everything else. And man, you hear all kinds of cuss words coming out of their mouth. Cause they couldn't grab me. And uh, finally the dude was just like, grab them by the foot. Let's go. And I'm like, that's what I'm talking about. Like, and and that's, that's what I try and instill the people is like, listen, they're not going to have handles. They're, they're probably going to be naked most of the time. Like, and if you're finding them in an area that, that they're exposed to any type of heat, their skin's probably just going to roll right off. Like Mm. these people are dead weight. They're slick. And, you know, obviously I'm very much alive, so I can't give them, that dead weight, but I can play limp pretty well. And, uh, you just letting them work through that because what they were finding was that once that soap saturated their gloves, they couldn't get a grip. It was just, didn't matter what they were grabbing. And I wanted them to experience that so that they can know like, Hey, you've got to quickly in your mind go from like plan A to plan B and realize like, Hey, I tried to grab this person and now I'm down here by their ankles. This is it. Like we got to move. Like, I don't have time to sit here and, and like put a harness on them or any of this. This is a very quick, dirty drag. You know, maybe we can get them to someplace else where we can work on them differently. But right now they're, they're close to this fire. We got to go. Um, so that's one thing we do. The other thing we do is, uh, very much stress. So we'll have, uh, live victims, right? We'll have people outside screaming, pulling on the firemen as they're trying to to lay the line or, or do any of those things. Um, we'll have people run right back into the building and just disappear, you know, and we'll, we'll put all those stresses of, of what you're probably going to see on the fire ground and why they're trying to make decisions. You know, people are yelling and screaming like, go get my kids they are in this room. And there's people popping out of the windows screaming and they're like, oh, crap. Now I got to throw another ladder. Um, just all just mass chaos, really. And uh, it, it's designed to make them be able to operate and quick think on their feet. You know, sometimes we'll do a baby drop or something like that um, just because the fire ground is so unpredictable. Right. And you might have a plan going into it and you might not expect any victims and wind up having four or five, or you might show up and people are hanging out windows. How you adapt to that is going to make a difference in waiting for that scenario to play out in your career is not going to help you any. So we're going to make that training as realistic as possible right here, right now. And, um, 
You know, it's, it's proven pretty well. I'd say, uh, we take people that come into our classes that say like, listen, I, I have like very limited experience. I don't know how to search. And we pull them off to the side and we work with them and we get them caught up. And then we throw them into that same scenario and they leave there and they're just like, thank you so much. And they have this overwhelming amount of confidence and we've gotten messages from people. Hey man, we did exactly what you taught in your class and it worked and we had a rescue and that's where it all kind of gels together. So people will look at uh, myself or our training cadre and be like, you guys are nuts. <laughs> you guys are out of control, yeah. but it's all, it's all designed for a reason. Like we're not just there to mess with you because we can, right? That's, that's not what it is. We're not trying to think that we're better than you or we're not laughing because you messed up. We're trying to create an environment that fosters growth, right? Because if you can do it on the training ground right there where everyone's yelling and screaming and it's like you're, all your senses are overloaded, you've been there before when it's real life. So there's some elements that we can't add. Like we can't always do live fire with live victims, but you know, we'll, we'll get it pretty close. And, um, you know, we, we push that envelope a little bit. I'm not afraid to say that, but it's, uh, it's necessary. I, I think that's the type of training that people need. Cause I didn't get it. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, I agree. No, that's, that's great. And uh, I was always, I was very impressed when you told me that story because, and I want the audience to know that this isn't how Sean treats his students at eight o'clock on the first morning of class, right? You, you go through a whole <laughs> lot of, a uh, whole lot of training, a whole lot of background, you know, and, and they, they have plenty of time to practice. And then at the end, towards the end of class, when you start doing these more realistic scenarios is when we get into a lot of what Sean just described, but um, you know, you're, you're building, right? You're, you're starting them out. You know, they come into a, to a class with a certain level of knowledge. They, uh, you know, people are going to come into class with all kinds of different knowledge bases, right? And as you said, some people are going to come in, not know as much um, as another person. So you pull them off to the side, right? It's it's all about building people up and coaching them, right? It's all about empowerment, I, to use a buzzword. Um, but just helping those people get to where they need to be because you're, you're right. You know, we can, we can train people and, and we can say, well, we do realistic training. Um, but at the same time, what, and, and I'm, I agree totally with what you're saying uh, as far as the realism, it's very important, but what, you know, certainly any training is better than no training, but like you said, um, you know, dragging a rescue mannequin, whether it's a, you know, pick a brand um, out of a burn building or out of a training house or, you know, around the bay of a firehouse, whatever it is, is a completely different animal than, than an unconscious human being. And I always tell people, I say, even if you've never found someone in a, in a building before to working fire, certainly you've probably made an EMS run where you've had an unconscious person or a person in cardiac arrest. So you can only, I mean, you've, you've had to deal with people that were unconscious and maybe not somebody in the fire academy who's just brand new, but certainly people that have got a little bit of experience or maybe a lot of experience, but, um, you know, you, 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 so you can kind of relate that to people and say, Hey, you know, you know how hard it was when you had to drag that, that person in cardiac arrest out of the bathroom in order to get them out in the hallway to do CPR or drag them off the bed or, you know, whatever the case might be. Um, just helping people to understand how big of a challenge that's going to be because to a certain degree, I think we instill a false sense of confidence in people if we let them 
drag a rescue Randy or, you know, a bull X mannequin or, you know, whatever company you, your department uses dragging them out and, uh, it's rigid. It's got handles, you know, or whatever they've got. It's got fire gear on, so you got something to grab onto, right? So I think that uh, that gives people a false sense of security. So anything we can do to make it more realistic uh, for the students ultimately is going to make it better for them in the long run. So that, as you said, you get those emails or you get those phone calls where you, where people say, "Hey, man, thanks so much for that training because you know it made it prepared me for what I ultimately faced, and I was able to get this person out." Uh, you know, and hopefully they lived, um, you know, some of that's not up to us, but, but they did their job correctly. Right. And once they identified the problem, they found the victim, they got them out in a timely manner versus fumbling around and, and, uh, not really knowing what to do as you, as you said, with like not going in with a game plan. Right. Anyway, that's sure. really, really important to prepare for all that. Um, you mentioned uh, we've talked a little bit about um, some of the studies and things, but um, would you mind going into um, some of the data that that you have found, you know, as far as like where we find our victims based upon time of day um, and, and some of those things that, you know, I, I'm sure everybody's familiar with UL and FSRI and and, uh, you know, and all sorts of things. But I don't think people really grasp um some of that, some of the information that is so readily available to us as a fire service today from from a lot of those studies. So, you know, what what are your thoughts on that? What are some things that you think the audience ought to hear or, or ought to know about? Well, I think first and foremost, um, if you want the up to date, accurate numbers, you need to go to firefighterrescuesurvey.com and and look at that. I mean, they have a whole PowerPoint presentation that you can download. They have all the numbers like you can look at and. And it's important. And the reason I say that is a lot of times people just take one little piece of something and that's what they choose to run with. And, and I've spent a lot of time and I know others who teach search have spent a lot of time like really like analyzing those numbers and saying, OK, well, why is this number higher here than it is over here? And what does this mean? And you, you really got to truly understand that. And in order to do that, you got to look at it. Right. Um, with that being said, bedrooms are are the highest area that we're going to find people. You know, it's like 45% of our rescues victims are found in bedrooms. And when you look at time of day, um, I don't know, I'm not going to go down the whole list of, you know, X amount this time, this time, this time, but we can pretty much bet that 24 hours out of 24 hours, somebody's going to be found in a bedroom. And the reason for that is, you know, a lot of people are, are home a lot more now, especially when COVID was like at its peak and, you know, people were working from home and, and things like that. Like you just assume that if you have a fire, someone's there. Right. So you want to look at those areas. And, and one of the things that I found interesting with that, if we're talking about percentages, is like 58 percent of the time our victims were found on the floor. Why does that matter? Well, it matters for a couple of things. One, it matters for removal. Right. Where is their airway in that process? But it also matters in search technique, right? Where are you searching? Like, for example, that whole, uh, well, if I could see my feet, I'm just going to walk. Great. Okay. I get it. You know, if the smoke's above your head, yeah, it probably doesn't make sense to, to you know, tripod. But majority of the time, you know, we don't have that luxury. So, you know, you need to take a stance on where you can give yourself the greatest chance of visibility, wherever that is. And when you tie the study into it, like we look at like, one foot elevation versus three feet elevation. So going back to bedrooms, if somebody's on the bed, they're probably in that three foot elevation. 
what does that mean? Is the door open? Is it closed? Right? Like where, where is that airway? Has it been exposed to saturated air? You know, like all of these things we have to think as critically thinking firefighters, but why I say bedrooms and, and what I tell people all the time is stop thinking about a standard bedroom, right? We look at a, we look at a house. Uh, okay. Like all the bedrooms are on this way, according to the floor plan, things like that. That's great. But that changes when we come into like a hoarding condition, doesn't it? Those bedrooms are probably out of play now because they're packed full of stuff. Those people are probably not in that bedroom. They're probably where? In the living room of some sort, like a family room, which now becomes our number one priority. So how many victims are found in that area, right? So we got to know like all the that breakdown. Essentially, the numbers are great and I love them. And, and especially when it comes to survival rates, because it really proves or disproves things. But we got to get better at understanding that like no reports or reports, like nothing's going to change. It can't, right? Time of day, nothing should change for us, right? Like we don't know this person's schedule. We don't know if they work at night or they don't work during the day. Like I've been to fires where cars are in the driveway and nobody's home because it's two family, you know, like two, two car family. So all the families in the other car. So I, you know what I mean? Like there's these things that we've been taught that I don't want to say are wrong, but we've used them too much to, to try and make our decisions instead of realizing like, Hey, if I'm going to find a victim, they're not out. They're not out here unless they jumped, <laughs> you know, or something like that. They're in there. So targeting my space of where am I most likely to find them statistically is what I want to know. Right. Hopefully they're not in there, but if they are, where am I going to have the greatest chance at a rescue? And if I don't know where that is, I'm going in blind. Right. If I don't take the time to, to break down those numbers and say, well, 45% of the time they're in the bedrooms, you know, they're either on the bed or on the floor. Like I, I just, I'm going to go through the front door and I'm going to hug the wall left or right. And I'm going to stay on that. I'm going to do a giant horseshoe all the way around this house, probably not searching much of any spaces. And I'm going to call it good. And then we're going to find a victim where I just was, or I could have been five minutes ago if I would have just slowed it down in my head and said, Hey, these are where the bedrooms are. I'm going to clear those spots first. Um, or like, hey, where are they in the greatest danger? That's a big thing too. Is, you know, I, toxic exposure and thermal exposure are our are, are enemies, right? So we got we to gotta kind of put that together too. Like, all right, well, the fire's over here. But where is that in relation to my bedrooms or where my victims are likely to be? You know, how long is it till I get water on the fire, you know? And when we start breaking it down, like over 90% of our searches, I'm sorry, 90% of our rescues were made before the fire was um, contained, right? Um, So when you start looking at that and you break it down, you're like, oh, it's like 92%, I think. Um, Hey, we're we're starting search ahead of suppression a lot of these times, you know, and I'm not saying that's what we should do every time. Don't, don't get it twisted. But I'm saying there's there's power in knowing that because we have a timid fire service in some areas where they're like, well, we can't search without a handline, right? Oh, or we even the search team has to have a handline with them, which is just nothing but slow you down, right? Like, so we have to break those stigmas and be able to prove that and say, hey, if I could prove that 92% of all these rescues are happening before the fire is under control, 
right? I'm not saying that water's not on it. I'm just saying before it's under control and we're prioritizing search, that's a lot of people rescued. You know, we can go through the same thing like split search. That's a big one. We were doing that in Pennsylvania, right? That was something some of those people were not familiar with. But when you say, hey, 32% of our rescues are made by way of split search. It's the largest percentage right there. Why? Because we're covering more space. And we're doing so by keeping communication. We're doing so because we we know like, you know, we're, we're we have know all without us, right? Like we're with us. Like we're saying, Hey, I'm, I'm oriented to, to my environment. Like my situational awareness is there. You're going to search that room. I'm going to search this room. And we're just boom, boom, boom. And we're clearing those spaces. Yeah. No surprise. It works. But I wouldn't do that with a, like a brand new person who's never searched before. Right. I got to teach them these things. How do I teach them that if I don't even know where to go look for the information? How do I teach them that if we've been, timid and shied away from that and never taught it in the academy or anything that we drill on. I can't. Yeah. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. That's, that is the benefit to me on the numbers. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like when you start looking at the VES and you start breaking that down or window initiated search, yeah. you start breaking that down. That has the highest percentage of rescues. One of the highest percentage of rescues is by way of window initiated search. Again, not surprising because you're putting yourself in areas that victims are most likely to be. It's not that dangerous thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. You got to be able to bring that stuff to the table and say, Hey, this is a great tactic. And if our mission is to save, save lives, we have to apply. And what we do, we have to stop going through the front door every single time. You may not have to do that. And here's why look at where our victims are. Here's how many are saved. And like, as soon as you can break that all down, Man, like this is one of my favorite things to do is say, here's the numbers of where they're found and here's their survivability rate. Mm-hmm. Here's how long it took to search from time of dispatch to time of arrival. Here's how long it took to search from arrival time to the time we actually located the victim. And here's their survival odds. You're looking at, gosh, what was it? Man, I, I'm going to say the wrong number. I'm going to regret it later. So I'm not going to say the number because I don't have it on the top of my head. Mm-hmm. But there was a, a significant percentage of numbers of rescues that were that were done within the first 10 to 15 minutes from dispatch to the time the victim was removed. 10 to 15 minutes. So we break that down further. We really have like an eight minute window from the time that we arrived to the time we want to get them out. Like... To, to really make a significant impact. And, and that's not to say that past that eight minutes, they're definitely dead. But what we know is like in that eight minute window, that is our sweet spot. That's really what we want to aim for. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know if that answered your question, but no, yeah, it does. You know, and, and you know, I'm not the first person to say this obviously, but knowledge is power and knowing that information makes us much more capable of doing the right things at the right times. I, I think you would agree. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, and, and, you know, you, you kind of talked about doing the split search and, and all that sort of stuff. I, much to my disappointment, I think that across the country, you know, more people than, than not probably still are of the concept that I have to either stay within the same room as my partner, or I have to stay in physical contact with my partner if I'm doing a search. And, you know, you just talked about it in, in great detail, so I'm not going to rehash it. But I think people need to get away from 
from this concept that maintaining contact with your partner that doesn't necessarily mean that you have that doesn't necessarily mean physical contact that doesn't mean that i have to go back and tap my partner on the butt every four steps i take you know to make sure that i'm oriented right if you can talk to your partner lord knows you ought to be capable of even if you get turned around if you can hear their voice you ought to be able to follow yourself to the sound so um, again, you know, as you said, that's not something that we're going to expect a brand new firefighter that's, sort of, you know, they're in their first few years on, you know, in the companies to necessarily be able to get down pat and master. But certainly, you know, once you've had an opportunity to get some experience under your belt and train on some of these things, um, you know, the, the more the more, you know, the more experience you have, the more flexibility you should have. And in the way you do business, because, again, we're we're here for them. Right. We're here for the people. We're not here just to collect a paycheck or to, to show up at uh, Applebee's on a Saturday night wearing our fire department t-shirt. Right. So, um, right. Nothing against Applebee's, but, uh, um, you know, <laughs> or fire department t-shirts. Uh, yeah. Right. Or fire department t-shirts. So, <laughs> um, but you know, you get my point, right. So, um, and I think yeah. that, that whole, you know, and, and we've kind of talked about training scars a little bit earlier in the podcast, but just sitting here listening to you, you know, reminds me that, when we do a lot of our trainings, um, myself, you know, just thinking about trainings that I've helped with in the past or that were conducted um, when I was running the fire academy and that sort of thing, um, we're in training. Where are our victims normally located? Where do we put our oh, victims? Oh, yeah. No. They're laying on the floor, <laughs> just right? Right. There. right. Yeah. So, oh, but, yeah. But as you mentioned, you know, not everybody's going to be found on the floor. There's going to be plenty of people who are going to be rendered unconscious in bed or in a crib or God forbid they got, you know, there's a kid sleeping on the top bunk. And if you haven't been taught how to recognize bunk beds, when you're doing a search, you know, that's the worst. I mean, I, I, I've preached it and I'm sure you have too, is last thing in the world you want to do is come out from a primary search and give the all clear and then find out, you know, during the secondary that somebody found a kid laying on the bunk bed five feet up in the air. Right. So, um, it's just, it's just that, that kind of knowledge and that kind of, um, um, you know, experience that that we need to be doing a better job, in my opinion, across the country. I know there's plenty of fire departments that are doing a good job, but as a whole, I think we could do a lot better in, in making that training more realistic. Um, another thing, and I, 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 you know, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this is, you know, I, we often talk about the importance, you know, it's not thermal burns that are going to kill our patients. It's normally the smoke inhalation, although we do have to be cognizant of, of the thermal impact that, um, that we, you know, the, the fire has on our victims, particularly in their airways, because their airways are going to be affected long before they're just going to burn up and cease to exist, you know, from thermal insult. But, um, you know, just, just maintaining that patient and whether it's finding an alternative way to get them out, whether it's dragging them into a room and isolating yourself until you can get yourself oriented and, and, and find an alternate means to get that victim out. Um, you know, I've seen it a lot where people will find a victim, particularly if we have a, a, a mannequin, you know, a child mannequin or even at a, at a real incident. Um, you know, I've seen people that they find a child, right, or a small adult or whatever. They pick them up and then they stand up and run out. Right. And I always say, OK, that may have been the fastest way for you to get that victim out. But when that victim was on the ground, they were in air that was, you know, 100 degrees uh, with probably some level of oxygen in it. And then you picked them up into air that was 250 degrees and it's full of smoke, right? So maybe they were 
alive when you found them. And by the time you get them out, they've got respiratory burns that are so bad that they're not going to make it or, you know, some other cause. But I, I think that, you know, as we've talked about, when we talk about doing this training, um, we need to make sure that um, or educating our people that we're, the decisions that we make are in the best interest of the patient. Um, and, and although I would agree that in the general majority of the time, getting that victim out of that fire you know, situation as fast as possible is the best answer. That may not always be the best answer, right? We may need to find, you know, a room to isolate ourselves or something else that, you know, I'd like to hear your thoughts on is because it's different than the way I was taught initially when I started in this business was, you know, shutting the door behind us when we're searching a bedroom or we're searching a den or, you know, whatever, isolating ourselves from the rest of the structure. When I started in this business, that was taboo. You never shut a door between you and your means of egress. But I think that's another thing that we've kind of learned over the years. Um, isn't necessarily set in stone that there are times and, and more times than not probably where it might be best for you to shut that door. If you're coming in, you know, doing a conventional search, conventional oriented search, you know, we, we do it with inner search. And I know there's VES, there's VEIS, and there's window-initiated search, but I'm going to keep calling it VES until the day I die. <laughs> um, yeah. But anyway, you know, we do it with VES. If we crawl in and the bedroom door's open, what do we do? We shut it, right? So why should that be any different? Now, the more I thought about it, why should that be any different if I'm coming in, you know, through a more conventional search through a front door or a rear door and, and searching a, a structure? Why shouldn't I isolate myself while I'm in there? And if I do some find somebody, more than likely there's going to be a bedroom, you know, there's going to be a window in that bedroom and I can, you know, hop, potentially hop right out that window rather than um, have to drag them back through all that stuff. So do you have any thoughts on on any of my ramblings? Oh, <laughs> I have a ton of thoughts. This is why I love our conversation because we're always on the same page. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I know like when I first started the fire service, like it was always preached like, Keep every door open. Right. Like even the front door, the perfect example. Like we go through the front door, maybe ahead of the hand line, and we were expected to chalk it open or tie it open or something like that. Mm -hmm. We didn't know any better. Right. right. Well, what's that doing? Like let's, and, and the, the UL just proved this, right? With their recent uh, study. Okay. Let's say I have a fire in the kitchen or the living room area and I'm coming in through the front door, but I'm ahead of the line probably the best thing I can do to control that flow path and conditions is close that door behind me. Yes. I know it's the front door and that's not typically what we're taught, but it's proven and backed by science that that for toxic gases and thermal exposures, as well as controlling the flow path is what we should probably be doing. So translate that into moving further, right? Um, Yes, we, we can go through VES. We can go through maybe we're starting our search for the front door. It really doesn't matter mm -hmm. where, you're, where you're doing this from. The best thing we can do for us and the victims is closed doors. And here's why. Um, one, you get reduction in temperature of like 900 degrees, right? That's number one. Two, I have an open door with an air concentration of maybe 8%. And I close it and I can I can bring oxygen concentration up to 18% just by closing that door. Well, normal room temperature air that you and I are breathing right now is 21%. So think about this from a firefighter survival standpoint as well. 
we're closing spaces, right? We're ventilating as we go. We're doing all those things that we now know help. I'm running low on air and uh, maybe I'm doing the search. Maybe I have a victim, whatever the case is. Wouldn't it be more beneficial to know that you have an area of refuge that you can go in? That one, it's going to be good for your victim's airway, but two, God forbid that you have to pull your mask off for whatever reason. You have 18% oxygen in there and you have space in that room that supports life. I would take those odds any day, right? Rather than having a mask suck into my face while I'm waiting on some help. That is only possible by controlling doors. So if we go back to that, I would do that for me in case I had an emergency, then why would we not do it ahead of time for victims? I mean, we're teaching them right now the close before you doze, right? right? I mean, that is the big campaign out there. Hey, close your doors is going to save your life. So if we're telling them that to do that, like pre-fire, like, Hey, that's gonna, that if anything in here, like you don't wake up through a smoke detector, whatever, as long as you have your door closed, you're, you're in a great spot. Why would I not continue to do that? Once I make the interior of this building, it just doesn't make sense to me. Right? So another reason for that is just cause you go in one way. Doesn't mean you're coming out that way. Just because I enter via a window doesn't mean that I'm coming out that same window. Right. What if I find a person in the hallway? Right. And there's a there's an exit point that's closer than where I just came from. Right. These are all these things like we got to understand that when we find a victim, we have to stay disciplined. Right. That's not the time to get squirrely. But our success on the fire ground is really dictated by small moments of time where we can have a great impact. And that might be either a staying like sheltered in place because the conditions on the other side of where you're at are not that great, like heat wise and, and toxic wise, but as well as the room that you're in, like I've shut this door and I've opened this window, but I'm not getting lift really good. I might opt to pull that person off the bed and put them on the floor because that one foot of lift that I have on the floor is better than them being exposed three feet high. Right. And I might just stay there. I might stay there for a bit until either fire attack can get a handle on this fire and conditions approve, or I get some help coming my way and conditions in this room approve so that I can do a window removal. So there's a lot to unpack with victim removal. And that's why I just made this new class about it because I feel like we spend a lot of time doing search stuff, which is awesome. But we are now at the point where we have to start putting the two together and saying, great, the rescue only happens if we successfully remove this person and we do all the best things that we can possibly do for them. And that may not be taking them out the fastest route. It very well may not be. You know, if I've got good, clean air, you know, one foot off the ground and it takes me three times as long to move them from the bedroom down a hallway out a door, but their airway is low, I'm probably going to opt to do that rather than intentionally taking their airway and putting it up in heat and, and smoke. Right. Yeah. That's not saying that it won't take them out a window. What I'm saying is we have to be able to assess the situation around us. And, and as a searcher and as, as someone who's removing victims, we can't just be reactive all the time. We have to be like, okay, take a minute, slow this down. Where am I going? What's the best way to get there? Um, you know, and there's a lot of factors that play into that, you know, a ton. And, I think that as far as the removal process goes, I always tell people, do you know how much weight you can move along? 
And some people are saying, no. I said, well, you better find out because when you find a victim sitting there doing nothing is not an option. Yeah. I'm not saying that you're <laughs> not saying that you're going to fully remove this person by yourself. You may, you may not, but sitting there waiting, especially if you're doing something on a split search, like I'm not going to make my partner stop their search to come help me right now. They'll come to me when I'm done, but I'm going to start that removal process. Look at this the other way. Like, there's a large volume of victims that are found in the same area as the initial victim. So if I know that statistically it's likely to be that there's other victims around, if I have two victims, what am I going to do? If I'm not moving through the space, closing doors and ventilating, and I don't have a place to drag both these people to, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Right? Cause now I have a dilemma. I have two victims and I have one removal point. So somebody's going to have to wait unless we've been doing what we're doing and we've practiced all these things and we say, Hey, this person's light enough. I'll take them this window. You got that room over there. You take them over there. Or we might opt to say, bring them both in here, close the door and we're going to take them out this window. So I know that's a lot to kind of like process, but that's how it has to be. Like we, when we're talking about victim removal, we have to be analytic and be like, okay, if this is my situation, what is my plan A? If I do this, how am I going to do that? And it's really about making and taking space. If I'm searching and I have a room that a door is open, a door is closed, I'm probably going to go search the open room first. Like close that door, search it, find a window, open it. And then when I leave, close that door behind me because the person that's behind that closed door potentially is in a way better spot than the person that's not. You know, so I, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, that's, 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 that's my rant. Yeah, I mean, that's all. You know, it goes back to some of those training scars we talk about. You know, if, if you find a if you find a victim in a in a training scenario and they, you know, once you locate the victim, you know, I've been parts of trainings before where you, where the instructor says, OK, you found the victim scenario is over. Right. But you didn't have to drag them out. Right. Or, you know, to take that a step further and, you know, with staffing what it is for a lot of departments around the country. Just because you drag that victim to out the front door, you know, if you go through the full scenario all the way to getting that victim outside, um, you know, as you know um, from firsthand experience, you're going to be pretty damn gassed by the time you get that person out in the front yard, right? Well, what happens if you're a, a three-person engine company and the next next uh, apparatus or the, the, the closest medic is still eight or ten minutes out? You're just going to leave them laying in the front yard and not treat them? You know, so so you, you've got yeah. that you've got that component as well that you know oftentimes gets overlooked. Is you know it's like okay, well we found the 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 mannequin scenarios over. You know, high five, success, right? But um, you know, and, and I'm not taking away from that, but at the same time, there's a whole lot more to it than just either locating the victim or dragging the victim out to the front door. You know, depending upon your staffing levels yeah. and who's coming from where and and what else is going on in your area and everything. So it's important just to to do everything we can to make that as realistic as possible. And, uh, you know, you brought up about your, um, about this, this drags class. And I think that's, again, that's one thing that, um, that we as, uh, firefighters oftentimes take for granted, you know, is, is well, if we find a victim, I'm just going to throw some webbing on them and girth hitch them and drag them out. Right. Um, or I'm going to make a hasty harness or some of the other, you know, outlandish things I've heard <laughs> in training, you know, yeah. and, and they, they pull their webbing out and it's inside an EMS glove all daisy chained together or rolled up in a nice <laughs> knot. Right. 
And you're like, dude, there's yeah. no way in hell you're ever going to get that out. You know, you'd probably be lucky to get it out in a training scenario, let alone at a real fire. But, um, but anyway, you know, what are some ways that you, you, uh, pr promote or you found it worked the best for you as far as, you know, victim drags? Is it behind the knees? Is it, uh, you know, under the arms? I mean, you know, there's certainly everybody knows the different techniques that are out there, but what have you found in your training and real life experience, you know, to work best for you, for the audience? Um, well, before I answer that, I want to, I want to go back to the airway real quick because it okay. correlates to the drags. Okay. All right. Um, I like to keep, I like to do everything as low as possible because I mean, we all know the fresh air, clean air is at the bottom. I and mean, we even know that with flow path, right? Hot air out, fresh air in at the bottom. So if we know that as far as like fire behavior and flow path and stuff goes, like why would we intentionally bring a victim up into that stuff when we can keep them low? So a couple things to, to consider when you're choosing your method is what environment are you in? 185 degrees or 187 uh, degrees at, at 10 for 10 seconds, your unprotected airway is done. Like that is not recoverable, right? 145 degrees of saturated air, same thing. You, you have, you have a failed airway. So, um, when we look at that and then we look at body temperature, if your victim's body temperature reaches 108.5, right? If that is not treated within minutes, they're dead. So obviously we're not going in with thermometers and we're not measuring these things, but those are important things to know when you're choosing how to lift people up into an environment. Because if I know that my mask is, is rated for like 400 degrees and I want to keep that out of that, why would I intentionally bring somebody who's not protected into that? Right. And that's what we teach with that whole dummy drag in the Academy, lift them up and drag them backwards. Right. Yeah. So my preferred method, what I found works best is I'm a small guy. All right. I have to, I have to use body weight to my advantage. Leg drags are my preferred. They're easy. Um, you know, I can move pretty quick with it. I can go long distances if I need to. Um, you know, that, that's, that is my preferred. However, it's important to, to train with like arm drags too. So like going back to that whole EMS, like we've all had that person that's just wedged between something and it's a pain to get them out. Right. Well, if I know that I can hook them under their arm and control their torso and maybe like reposition them and move them just even inches at a time till I can get more space to work with. It's a lot better than me trying to put webbing on them or fight and exhaust myself and use air. Right. Like, that body weight, once you get it shifting, it, it's going, right? And you can manage it relatively okay um, as long as they're not, you know, like 300 plus pounds. So that's a good one. Uh, taking things from uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, like, you know, grips, the Kimura grip and, and things like that. Those are always good. Um, I have found that just for me because I like to stay low. I, I'm just, I'm just going to grab the legs and I'm going to go. You know, I've developed technique based off experience that um, if I encounter some like debris or, or my victim gets wedged or something while I'm dragging by the legs, I have some techniques that maintaining that position, I can lift their, their butt end up and their a little bit of their torso and clear those obstructions and go right back down to the drag and keep going. I've never lost anything, Right. I can't say that to be true with webbing or, or any other grip. So, um, yeah, that's me. I like to stay low. However, 
with that being said, if you are in an environment that uh, you can keep them low, I've seen a lot of people pick up the legs and drag backwards and, and that's fine. I, the reason I don't prefer that is I like to see where I'm going, right? I, I like to be facing towards an exit, uh, even if I can't see anything, because I want to see the lift that happens as we're moving if ventilation's working. So um, that lift being low, as we know, the lift is going to go from the bottom up. So that might give me the layout that I need, right? Even if it's only a couple inches, I might be able to like scan and see like, okay, I need to go this way versus that way. Like, there's a lot of things at play into to my decision to go feet first. Um, and plus, if you if you are removing out of a window, you're like 80% done with your removal as soon as you get their feet to that window. You know, you got a couple of tweaks you got to make, make sure that their legs don't flop and control that torso. But man, they're up and out. And especially if you have somebody that is either climbs out the window to help you or is climbing up a ladder to help you, you throw those wrists out, man, boom, you're good to go. So uh, there's a lot of benefits to that where I have found with maybe some of the other drags, there's a lot more adjustments um, and you're using smaller muscle groups. So you tend to get tired a little bit more. So uh, yeah, that that's just, that's my preferred if, if at all possible. And when we teach, I, I find the biggest person, I said, you and I are going to be friends. <laughs> I, I'm going to drag you and I'm also going to remove you. And I think like 375 has been my, my max right now. Um, but let's be real. Like, even if I can lift a 375 pound person up and out a window, the other people who's receiving that victim, probably not a good day for them. So we might want to look at, you know, second ladder, maybe like that. Yeah. Yeah. Second ladder. Um, or, Hey, if the, if the construction allows for it, maybe make that, that window into a door and just slide them out and do everybody a favor. So absolutely. um, Yeah. That, that, that's it for me. Really. That's all, that's all good stuff, you know? And, and, uh, I think it's important to, you know, we've kind of, we've kind of taken it from, from, Hey, we're going in the building to how are we going to search the building to, Hey, we found a victim and now how are we going to get them out? So I think, you know, for less than an hour and for about an hour and 25 minutes into this, we've, we've done a pretty good job of from start to finish, you know, I, I would say, and you had me blabbing for five minutes of that in the beginning, running through all my <laughs> stuff. So I'd say we've done a pretty good job. Is there anything else? Um, I try and keep these about an hour and a half. So we're coming up on that. Is there anything else um, you want to add? Um, you know, I know you got uh, build your culture. Um, you know, you got this new class you're coming out with. Is there anything else uh, that you want to um either discuss based on, you know, related to our topic tonight or just things you want to, you know, let the audience know before we kind of wrap things up and, and uh, sign off. Um, I, uh, yeah. So I got to be careful not to get on, on a tangent about this. Um, and it's kind of a very sensitive subject for some people, but I would say when it comes to, to the search and the whole like searchable versus survival or the mindset of like, do we go, do we not go? Um, there's a lot of, reasons people choose not to. And one of the biggest one being that, that two in, two out. Right. And like I said, I'm not here to say that you should, or you shouldn't. i just want to urge people to really dig into, to what that directive says, because there's a lot of information. I know that I wasn't told it was just all my knowledge base of it was you have to have four people and unless it's immediate rescue. 
okay, well, we have a lot of supporting stuff now to show us that basically any fire we go to, if we're able to make entry, could be an immediate rescue. Absolutely. Right. We yeah. can't, we can't base it on reports or no reports or any of that stuff or time of day or, you know, is a grass grown or not? Like those are all things that are all out the window right now, especially with the amount of rescues that we're getting. Right. Uh, Chief Brush did a phenomenal job with his, his uh, study for Oklahoma university. If I told you that every two hours and 30 minutes, we're putting our hands on people on fire ground and removing them from structures that's like 10 rescues a day. These are happening. And if you're following the Firefighter Rescue Survey Facebook page, where people post all the rescues that are happening daily all through this country, you'll see it's pretty frequent. And some of those are multiple rescues at the same fire. So I'm going to read this definition real quick because there's a thing in that two and two out directive that quotes reasonable belief. All right. The legal definition of reasonable belief is the belief is based on a reasonable ground. This does not mean that the worker's belief needs to be correct. A worker has a right to be wrong in their reasonable belief. That's number one. So we have a little bit of leeway there. That's not talked about in a directive that if you have a strong feeling that we need to make a rescue, do you have a reasonable belief people are inside? Man, it's legally telling you that you could be wrong in that. That's fine. But you acted in the best interest of that civilian. It also says that this test is applied to reasonable belief will be an objective test. The disclosure will be assessed based on how a reasonable person will respond to the information available to him or her at the time that the disclosure was made. I would argue that the fire department should be the most reasonable people on that fire ground. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the people coming out of that building... Mm-hmm. Or the neighbors, everybody's so emotionally charged, mm-hmm. and we're not really attached to that event, at least not yet. Right. Right. We're just showing up. So just do your research, form your own opinion about it. But I, I just want people to stop taking things at face value and saying, well, because I was told this, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it's got to be true. Man, there's a lot of things like we, like you said, we operate in the gray. There's a lot of gray area for us to make a significant impact on these fires. And what a shame it would be if that was the fire that you could have made rescues and you chose not to because you were hiding behind something that you didn't truly understand. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And, and I, you know, you have to live with that, you know, and that's something that I tell people all the time is the last thing in the world you want to have to do is live with the fact that there was somebody in there and either you didn't do it thorough search and you missed them or, you know, your policy said that you couldn't go in because of X, Y, or Z. And, and then you've got to live with that. Right. So, um, you know, it's, it's incredibly important. And I know, you know, as you said, there's plenty of places where that two in two out is like etched in stone came down from, you know, Noah brought it down from on high and it's, it's the commandment that nobody else, nobody can break. But I think that it's important to understand when you can deviate from that. And, and you did an eloquent job sure. of, of explaining that. And that was uh, hopefully, hopefully a lot of people, uh, you know, were able to take something away from that. So again, you got Great Lakes Hot coming up. I know you didn't mention it. I'll mention it for you. Um, for the audience, one of the dates for that again. Just- oh, that's going to be June 12th through the 15th of, uh, of 2024. 
Yeah. So that's up in Michigan. Yeah. You know, you probably kind of figured that yeah. out from the Great Lakes uh, title. But anyway, <laughs> um, you know, look, if you're in the Midwest, if you're even if you're not in the Midwest and you just want to get some good good training after you after you attend uh, FDIC, of course. Um, Absolutely. Know, head up to uh, Great Lakes Hot. They do a great job up there. So, Sean Duffy, again, I want to thank you um, for, you know, giving me an hour and a half of your time this evening. I know you, he was on, Sean was on duty yesterday at the fire department, um, you know, got off work this morning, did what all, all of us do on our days off, you know, run errands, work the side job, all that sort of stuff. And here he was tonight uh, helping me out, being a guest on my podcast. So I really appreciate it. Um, Sean, thanks again. Uh, you got any closing words before we kind of sign off for the for the episode? Uh, first, thank you for having me on. I always enjoy our conversations, so I uh, appreciate that. Um, uh, if anybody wants to reach out to me for anything, feel free to do so. Uh, social media is the easy way to get a hold of me or uh, my email, duffy558 at gmail.com. Um, it might take me a little bit to get back to with you just because I got so many irons in the fire, so to speak. So if it's really important, you haven't heard from me, um, just send me another message and kind of say, Hey man, I, I really, I really need to talk to you or, or whatever. And, you know, we'll make it happen. But, uh, you know, the other thing is, uh, I don't have all the answers and I don't consider myself an expert in anything. So, um, I will certainly share with people what I know, what I found out, I'll share my failures and all of those things. But, uh, ultimately, um, I want people to be able to make their own decisions and I don't want to see anybody violate their policies and procedures or get themselves jammed up just because Sean said this. <laughs> so, um, that, that's really about it, man. I, I really do appreciate your time this evening. Absolutely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Sean Duffy, one of the most passionate people in the fire service today that I, that I can say that I, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to spend some time with, um, very approachable. If, if he's got an answer that you need, um, you know, he's going to give it to you. He's going to help you out any way he can. So if you've got anything that you want to reach out to him about, please do so. Um, thanks for tuning in tonight again. Please like the the podcast. If you're on one of the podcast platforms, um, give it the, the thumbs up, the five stars, whatever the rating um, uh, platform format is. And then if you're on YouTube, please give it a thumbs up. Uh, subscribe to the Fire Engineering Network on on YouTube, um, share the video, please. Um, on behalf of Hooks and Hoses, I'm Eric Dryman. Uh, thanks for tuning in to uh, the podcast this evening, and uh, we'll see you in October. Everybody have a good, uh, good week. Take care. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.